Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. We had a, a, some elections yesterday uh, around the country. The one that we focused uh, the most attention on was the Supreme Court uh, election, actually primary election, Supreme Court primary election in the state of Wisconsin, which as uh, my colleague and co-host Kate Riga has been explaining in a series of articles is highly, highly consequential. Um election because, well, for a couple reasons. As we know, uh, presidential elections come down to Wisconsin. Uh, very big deal, especially in the new era where uh, who wins the vote is not necessarily the last word. Are you going to have the state legislature come in and just, you know, pick someone else or something like that? So uh, the uh, Supreme Court is a big deal. But not only that, there's also the issue of, of state gerrymandering in the, you know, the, the gerrymandering of the state legislature uh, in Wisconsin. And as we've discussed uh, on the site and in a few earlier podcasts, Wisconsin is, is the uh, poster boy, and not in a good way, for state gerrymandering in this era of our politics. We have, as, as you know, uh, Wisconsin is the kind of archetypal 50-50 state in, in our era. You know, it was a, a close call Democratic state in presidential elections for a generation or more. Then uh, Donald Trump won it very narrowly, but won it. And Joe Biden won it. Uh, we also know that, uh, you know, gubernatorial elections are kind of razor's edge kind of things. We had Scott Walker, uh, a number of very close elections, actually won three elections. One of those is recall election that he that that he turned back. And now we have uh, Tony Evers, who is is just started his second term. Um, I just started. Yeah, just started his his uh, his his second term as governor. And they're always basically 50 50. They're very narrow margins. Uh, the state has one Democratic senator, one Republican senator, as is often the case in the history of Wisconsin going back decades, almost a century. Uh, it's not like you've got, you know, a moderate Democrat and a moderate Republican. You've got an extremely conservative Republican and a fairly liberal uh, Democrat. Uh, everything's a close call there. And it is sort of a measure of the Democratic nature of a of a state in this day and age where you shouldn't be able to have every statewide election basically be a 50-50 election 
that one side or another wins by 51% or 52% or like, you know, 50.1% or something like that. And yet you have a state legislature that is always Republican. In fact, in recent election cycles, the question hasn't even been whether Republicans will control the state legislature. It's whether they will control it by by majorities or super majorities. There's something wrong there. You should not, I mean, just as a basic thing, you should not have it be consistently the case that the electorate is basically a 50-50 electorate and the state legislature is overwhelmingly dominated by one party. You see there's a basic breakdown there. In our system of geographical jurisdictions and first-past-the-post elections, you'll have some variances. You know, in, in the 2022 election, Republicans will point out that they did better in percentage terms in the overall congressional vote than they did in terms of the number of seats they got. Usually in congressional elections in this country, it's the reverse. Republicans get more seats than votes. Uh, and there's, you know, there's a fair amount of gerrymandering in, uh, in the federal House of Representatives. There's also the urban-rural split, which sort of accentuates that. But again, in any one election, it can kind of tilt back and forth. It doesn't tilt back and forth in Wisconsin. Again, the only question in the last decade, especially the last decade, but even kind of before that, in Wisconsin is whether Republicans control the legislature or whether they control it by a supermajority and then basically go about, uh, you know, removing the governor's powers. So it's, it's, it's really locked in. And, and this is all a big way of saying, a long way of saying that that Supreme Court, state Supreme Court is a big, big deal because that is ultimately what backs up the in-state uh, gerrymanders. And uh, this is one of the kind of, um, uh, you know, kind of breakdown points for democratic government in this uh, country these days, especially, you know, kind of breaks down different state constitutions work different ways. But if you have a highly gerrymandered state legislature, that state legislature can kind of keep gerrymandering over and over again, and there's and there's no um, and there's no uh, there's no failsafe. And in in again, one of the one of the quirks of our mix of fairly democratic voting with fairly undemocratic. Uh, uh, political structures that sit on top of that voting is that if you had a, let's say you had a super gerrymandered for Republicans state legislature in New York state, you're not going to be able to sustain that when the state is overwhelmingly in one direction, in the other direction. That just, that just won't hold. But when it's basically 50-50, it can hold because the party that is shut out isn't winning by like 60% of the vote so they can like overwhelm a gerrymander or it just, you know, kind of breaks down at, at some, uh, some other level. Generally speaking, again, uh, elections in Wisconsin are 50-50. So, you know, you're not going to overwhelm a, a, a solid gerrymander. So anyway, we had this... Um, 
We had this state Supreme Court race, a uh, uh, primary election last night. Um, I think basically we would say that, uh, the, you know, the, the people who advanced to the general were expected, certainly on the pro- on the progressive side, I think that's the case, probably on the conservative side. These are nominally nonpartisan elections, so that's why I'm saying uh, uh, progressive and, 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 and democratic. And it's probably also right to say that on the conservative side, Democrats basically got the candidate that they wanted. You know, you never know how these things are going to pan out exactly. But I was talking to a, uh, I guess what you might call kind of a, a, a defrocked, uh, Wisconsin Republican uh, a few days ago. And uh, this guy said he didn't think, he thought only one of the two Republicans in the race really could win could win the general. And the guy who won, who, who advanced to the general is not that one. Um, another thing that happened, and we'll get more into this because Kate's really the expert on this. This happened when, in Wisconsin, and it generally happened in a lot of other races around the country last night, which was that there was a lot of Democratic overperformance in the results of these elections. Uh, I believe the, um, uh, the two-party, not it wouldn't be two-party exactly, basically um, in Wisconsin, I believe the two uh, you know, liberal progressive candidates got more than 50% of the vote together. It's obviously a good sign. You never know with a special election since, you know, turnout is 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 so odd. Um, so that's, you know, again, that's a good sign in general. You'd rather be on that side than 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 the opposite. And then in a number of in a number of other races around the country, Democrats, again, overperformed. Now, in a lot of those cases, they were races that Democrats were expected to win. There was a um, a special election for Congress in. Uh, in uh, Virginia, that was basically in a Democratic district, so well, there was no uh, suspense about who was going to who was going to win there. Um, but by percentage terms, Democrats did substantially better um, uh, than was expected. And expected, you know, you have baselines. You know, where what what was the two party vote in the twenty twenty election? What was the two party vote in the twenty twenty two election? So you're exceeding these these um, exceeding these benchmarks. Um, the other, uh, and there are a few other races around the country. We're gonna we're gonna get into that, and then we're also gonna talk about. Uh, we have some we have some news that sort of uh, sets the stage for uh, the twenty twenty four Senate elections. We're gonna talk about that in a moment, and also, of course, uh, Joe Biden's uh, surprise visit to Ukraine, which you know everybody saw the pictures of. We're gonna talk about that a little bit more. Um, but before we get to that, let me remind you that the. Uh, Josh Marshall podcast is brought to you by Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee. If you're roughing it in the wilderness or traveling to some remote location, finding the perfect cup of ice coffee can be a serious challenge. But Grady's Cold Brew is here to help. Grady's reusable all-in-one cold brew kit is ultra light and packs flat, so it's easy to stash in your suitcase, your backpack, whatever kind of you know traveling accoutrement you are bringing with you. All you need to do is add water. Tap, bottled, filtered directly from a mountain stream. Doesn't matter. No electricity or refrigeration is required when you, brew, when you brew it this fresh. Each kit makes 36 cups of coffee for only 30 bucks. Great, great, uh, great value. Grady's Cold Brew is independently owned and operated in New York City since 2011. If you're ready to give it a swirl, get 25% off your first order at Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. 
That's Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. Okay, Kay Riga, uh, you've been following um, this Wisconsin Supreme Court uh, primary election uh, in advance, looking at all the kind of internal politics of it. What's the story? What did we see last night? So last night, top two vote getters went through, which is Janet Protasewicz and Dan Kelly. Like you said, Janet, or I mean, ran away with it. They AP called her race in like 30 minutes after the polls closed. And she was the presumed front runner. She'd been kind of getting all the money, um, kind of staking out the spot of being very candid about her position on the biggest cases that the court is going to deal with, you know, abortion and gerrymandering. Um, And actually, the other, you know, kind of liberal aligned judge in the race, Everett Mitchell, is super interesting and has a very compelling story. Um, He's quite a bit younger than all the rest of them. He's running to be the first black justice elected to the Wisconsin Supreme Court and has so far um, done a lot of his career in like juvenile drug court and has instituted all these really interesting reforms um, and also has a very kind of hard scrabble background where he was homeless and, um, you know, had to learn to read at a later age. So anyway, he's a very compelling story, but um, the reforms he made, he made them as a as as, as a judge or mm-hmm. like as, as a, a defense. Judge. OK, got it. Got it. Yeah. Got it. Um, you know, including like not shackling juveniles in his courtroom, which became a statewide reform, stuff like that. But you know, towards the beginning, some kind of details came out from his acrimonious custody battle with his ex-wife. And that was the point at which kind of the national money got scared off, basically, and he never really picked up steam again. I think you also can't discount the fact that, um, you know, we just came off the Ron Johnson, Mandela Barnes campaign, which was just viciously racist. And there has been some recriminations from the Barnes camp since that the National Democratic Party like didn't do enough to help them. All this just to say, hostile environment for Black candidates to begin with. Isn't there, hasn't there been some after the fact, um, I mean, separate from what you're talking about, which is a very real issue. My, my sense is, is that after the fact, um, I mean, the reason a lot of the money sort of uh, I don't want to say abandoned Barnes at the end, but why there wasn't a lot of support at the very end is, you know, people were seeing those Republican kind of junk polls, which which affected everybody's sense of what was going to happen. And if you were watching uh, the polls in the last, you know, two or three weeks before the election, they had Ron Johnson opening up depending on what poll you look at you know three four point five point i mean even in a couple cases even even bigger leads but sort of like a substantial lead like he's gonna win this um and uh when you see that you know money is a finite a finite commodity uh people start you know pushing that money down to Arizona or Pennsylvania or Georgia and then in the in the event i don't know if it was under 1% or just over 1% but Barnes just lost by like 1% so it was mm-hmm. super close and so you have another factor there that is um at least uh, it's related, but it's distinct from the fact that he was an African American candidate um in a pretty rate well a very polarized electorate, a fairly racially polarized electorate that they definitely thought not without some reason um, after the after the results, kind of like we were really close. We were closer than people thought. And, you know, 
few million dollars at 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 the end could have made the could have made the difference. Now it was let, let me ask you with um now is it Mitchell who's the who was mm-hmm. ended up being the second second so to speak second place liberal candidate. So I, I was I wasn't clear on this. I I thought he always had less support than she did. But what you're saying is that at an early stage, that wasn't as as clear as it ended up being? Yeah, I mean, it was decided pretty quickly. But I think in terms of kind of which horse are we going to back, that helped take him out of the running. And then there's also the strategic sense that people were very concerned about vote splitting. You know, you have a pool of four people, two of each ideological bent, always the concern that if your voters are kind of evenly caught between the two, then lo and behold, right, the two conservatives go through. Um, So anyway, all of that goes to say it was kind of, at least I assumed that pro to say what's would get through. Um, I did not assume that she would have such a showing that she did. Um, just an overwhelming amount of the vote share and turnout was quite high as well. Um, So then, you know, as the night kind of unfolded, the drama was which of the two conservatives is going to go through. It was Dan Kelly, uh, a former justice who we'll get into, but he's got lots of big lie ties. And then you had Jennifer Doro, who's kind of more recently come to the scene. Uh, we mentioned last pod that she kind of came to prominence because she was the judge in charge of the the person who drove the SUV into the Christmas market and that kind of, that raised her profile. And, you know, the conventional wisdom among uh, Democrats was that Doro was the much stronger general election candidate for a few reasons. She's a little bit more careful in public than Dan Kelly is, or at least a little more coy with her leanings. And that's not across the board. I mean, she's praised Dobbs. Uh, She called Lawrence v. Texas um, judicial activism at its worst. She clearly, I mean, has all those tendencies, but um, was a bit more restrained in the the lead up during the campaign, she was probably the one of the four who was the least willing to comment on the big issues that's going to come before the bench. So I think that helped keep her a little bit less fleshed out of a character, especially when most people probably know her as, you know, the judge that brought down the fist of law and the guy who drove his car into holiday shoppers. Right. Not not like uh, not like one of these cases where bad stuff happened, but people kind of sympathize in different ways. I mean, there's not a lot of, there's not a lot of constituency for like, you know, plowing your car through a bunch of parade growers, you know, goers and killing a bunch of people. Now, from what you describe though, it sounds like she is, um, you know, what before the Trump era would have been, you know, fairly typical uh, conservative Republican judge, you know, anti-abortion, whether you want to say traditionalist versus, you know, uh, uh, non-judicial activist on issues like, you know, anti-sodomy laws and stuff like that, I'm sure very tough on crime. But then you get into a whole other thing of like, do we, do we, do we pay attention to elections? Do we, do we believe in QAnon? (laughs) <laughs> and and that ended up from what you're describing that ended up being the cleavage between these two that you've got a kind of you know down the line pre-Trump conservative judge and then kind of a very much a Trump era person. I would affix the caveat that 
that is kind of how they publicly presented, but we don't know all that much about her. And also right. her tr- uh, her husband served in the Trump administration and the Department of Homeland Security. So, you know, there are some reasons to believe that she might ultimately be just as Trumpy as Dan Kelly, but she just didn't right. parade it so much. Right, and then right, right. with Dan Kelly, you know, he he already had massive political liabilities. First and foremost, the fact that he lost his seat in 2020 by almost 11 points. I mean, that's a shellacking in a state like Wisconsin. Th- that um, I would definitely, I mean, I, I guess that's what, um, that's what this guy I was talking mm-hmm. to is kind of getting at. I mean, there's a track record. Yeah, recent. And he, and, he, and he lost as an incumbent, right? Exactly. So right. he booted off the court. So that's not that's that's not a that's that's not a good selling point. Right. And since then he just really hasn't taken any pains to kind of make himself more palatable to a general election audience. You know, he's gone on this uh election integrity tour. A piece came out last week that he was on the Republican Party's payroll to help advise on the fake elector scheme in Wisconsin, which our listeners will remember was, you know, kind of a key part of the Trump world's gambit to overturn the 2020 election, that he was being paid by Republicans in an official capacity as recently as December. And then he's even kind of overstepped the usual, you know, kind of judicial uh, mores bounds in that when Trump lodged his lawsuit in Wisconsin in 2020 to try to overturn the election, uh, the Supreme Court there rejected it by a 4-3 ruling. And the four were the three liberals plus one conservative, Brian Hagerdorn, who kind of has a history of siding with the liberals on big decisions. And Dan Kelly, you know, gave an interview about it and said that Hagerdorn is supremely unreliable, you know, that he questions his his judicial decision making. I mean, to the point where Hagerdorn responded to reporter inquiries about that, which we know, you know, even though these state Supreme Courts are a little less locked down than the U.S. Supreme Court, it's a privilege that judges like to exercise that they like don't really have to talk to reporters. So it, it is kind of a sign that, you know, he, he was pissed about it. Um, so, Dan Kelly's just got all this stuff in addition to being kind of, you know, aggressively anti-abortion and kind of where you'd expect him to be on the the social issues. And so I think part of the calculation was, well, we got an 11 point loser on our hands. Right. And then the other part is it's going to be very difficult for this guy to moderate for a general election without looking kind of ridiculous, which is obviously a problem that has plagued Republicans in all levels this past midterm election, you know, but it's like someone like Don Balduck in in, uh, New Hampshire, who's like coming out of the gates, this huge conspiracy theorist, and then in the general has to pretend to you know, care about like bread and butter issues. I mean, it just people have not been buying it. Right. So I think that is kind of the calculation here, why Democrats prefer to run against Dan Kelly and why I think now they're pretty much as happy as they could be with the results, barring some weird thing wherever Mitchell also got through. Right. Because the guy that they want to run against got through and people were really interested in the race. And that is always that kind of uh, lingering concern from older years, which doesn't really seem to be holding up anymore, but that off-timed elections, small, very uh, small pool of voters, they're usually older, whiter, more conservative, that in the past has favored Republicans. And we've covered a number of races, I think, that now show 
those dynamics are shifting a bit. Um, but this was, you know, another good data point in that. Now, in that I thought I, I thought I saw, and and the numbers may not be, you know, uh, I guess we don't have final numbers yet. But I thought I saw that um, the total turnout in this election mm-hmm. was higher than the last judicial general election, which I don't know if that was in 2022 or, or, or 2020. Um, but if that's the case, or if that's roughly the case, that's a, that's a pretty big, I mean, again, in the old, in the old era, a primary election for a state Supreme Court race, you know, you're lucky you get a hundred people to show mm-hmm. up, right? It's pretty, it's, it's, it's considered a uh, uh, pretty, pretty down in the weeds. Um, is there, uh, you know, I, I mentioned, obviously, 2024 is a very big deal. You know, conceivably, the whole, the whole presidential election could come down to a close, a close vote in, in, in Wisconsin. Give the gerrymandering issue. How much of this, how much of the turnout, how much of the result do you think was driven by the abortion issue? Since that's, I, I, Yes. Okay. So there's all these different permutations in different states. Wisconsin, I believe, there's what an 1840s era law mm-hmm. on the books that has kind of popped back into place now and has a very kind of archaic and ambiguous life of the mother kind of thing, but is you know almost like written in like Shakespearean Shakespearean <laughs> exactly. English or something like that. So remind us yeah. what the story is there. It uses the phrase therapeutic abortion, which is not. A medical phrase to begin with, um, you know, it involves perhaps like a a group, a couple of physicians having to kind of conference and decide whether the woman is in enough, you know, is actually going to die. Um, everything about it is the kind of thing that is just kind of, you know, cater made to leave doctors and concern about legal jeopardy. And the result of that is always, you know, that women get hurt or get sick or unnecessarily suffer. So yeah, it's one of these like super old ones. Um, It's, you know, governing the state right now. So there is no abortion access. And so I think that's why the abortion issue, which overall, I think the saliency has been a lot deeper and more resounding than some people expected, you know, with the amount of months that have kind of lapsed since Dobbs. But Wisconsin is kind of a perfect example because they have the abrupt new anti-abortion era in their state. And I'm sure all the local people, you know, even if they are not being personally affected by it, are seeing stories, are seeing, are hearing stories. So it's kind of the perfect moment to have the two forces really pitted against each other. I mean, someone who has said that abortion, you know, is is to preserve sexual libertinism. And then you have uh, the liberal saying, you know, women's right to choose, women know what's best for them kind of thing. It'll be really interesting to see if Dan Kelly tries to like soften his abortion position at all. I think he probably won't, but... Probably also can't. I mean, what are you you gonna say? I mean, you know, um, is... is, Have there... I guess two questions. I mean, I I understand the point about, you know, you, you have this really bad situations that are created where the doctors may want to do the right thing, but they're also people too. And they need to worry about, does the local DA want to mm-hmm. make a, make a point and I'm going right. to get like, you know, indicted for murder. And I, and I would, I would, or, you know, whatever the, whatever they're calling the crime in, mm-hmm. in, in, in that case. And I would guess too, and people don't realize this sometimes or don't, 
think this part through if they're not really kind of uh, deep in the issue or deep in the the political structural issues tied to the issue that people say, well, you know, uh, a Democratic governor, you know, he'll he'll just, you know, kind of be say, let's not prosecute. But at least as I understand this, this is up to the local DA. So you're kind of at the mercy of you know, local DAs. It's the, the local DAs are not. It, it's it's not a. Um, these are highly political um, positions, and I and I guess also to to your point about that kind of, you know, confrontation of the two forces over the kind of the the the, the core issue that in Wisconsin it's a little different than, let's say, Mississippi with the way that abortion rights has been moving over the last decade, got a lot of states where in practice, abortion was already illegal. Like there's kind of basically no clinics left. So in certain states, the practical effect of Dobbs was much more limited than one might think, just because it was all but impossible to get illegal abortion in those states already. I would assume very much different in Wisconsin. It's basic. It was basically a pro-choice state until suddenly it's not. So it's kind of, it's a little more like if, if like in New York state, just one day there's, there's no more abortion access. Totally. I mean, I mean, and you think it's, it's bordered by Minnesota and Illinois. And so it's a little bit less to, to your point of these states that are kind of just abortion deserts and more a a standout kind of Island um, within that. Well, I guess that also probably, you know, not that it's it. It shouldn't be the case, but you have some states that are very isolated, and you've got to fly. And I guess that at least in 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 significant parts of Wisconsin, you do have somewhere where you can go to a, a relatively short distance. Again, I'm not saying that's like oh, don't worry about it. You just drive over yeah. to Minnesota or Wisconsin, but it but it but it um you know, but these become very practical mm-hmm. issues for people. Um, uh, living in the state, I mean, I think we, I think we've talked about um, the way that Kansas, because of of what happened with that uh, election, and you know the kind of the peculiarities of how the uh, of how the Kansas Constitution has been interpreted, that it has been sort of like an island um, of abortion rights access, at least for now, surrounded by states that have none. And that that's, you know, those in the era that we're living in, those things become very important. You know, you don't have to fly, you know, 1500 miles or something like that, that there is relatively close. Now, obviously, that doesn't that doesn't necessarily um, that is a bigger deal with um, purely elective abortions. Obviously, if you're in a hospital severely ill um you you can't just like ah going to drive over to Kansas you know exactly. um so the 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 modalities and specifics uh you know vary depending on what the nature of the situation is mhm yeah exactly so let's um quickly you mentioned in the intro talk about these other races that we had last night because speaking of high turnout for oddly timed races you know this is february of 2023 it's just electorally in the middle of nowhere um and the consistent theme last night, which is kind of enormous democratic overperformance, even as you say, in places where, you know, there was very little mystery about, you know, who is going to win. But for instance, 
we had the special election in Virginia, um, a district that Biden won by 36 points. So not exactly a nail biter. But uh, McClellan, the woman who won, you know, won by 44 points. So that's quite an overperformance. And then we also had a New Hampshire House seat. Um, Biden won there by five. The Democrat won by 12. And then a Kentucky Senate seat. Biden won there by 31 points. The Democrat won by 54. So, I mean, that's quite a sign of kind of enduring democratic enthusiasm. Yeah, it's sort of, I'm you know, every race is different. And, and, you know, I think perhaps in some of these cases, the argument, if you're a Republican, uh, you might say, look, these were democratic seats. So, so why were, were we weren't going to try to turn any, why were we going to try to turn anybody out? It's, it's, it's a democratic seat. And, and so the fact that there was a big overperformance kind of doesn't really tell you much. Okay. But it's also the case the Democrats knew they were going to win. So it kind of plays both ways. So it's, it's a little hard to, you don't want to, you don't want to read too much into, uh, into these races, but it does seem pretty consistent across the board. Um, and so, and I'm trying to also think, you know, these are mostly states where abortion is uh, fairly on the ballot. Um, you know, in Virginia, this was a this was a just for context. This was a special election to fill the seat of a member of Congress who died shortly shortly after the 2022 election, right? Like a, like a month or something like that. So it's federal seat. So it's not, it's, it's, it's not directly relevant to law in, in the state of Virginia. Uh, but abortion because of the governor is, is a live issue. There's, he's at least, I guess my understanding has been, the question is whether he, he, uh, you know, wants to do a 15 week ban, a youngkin, a 15 week ban in the state. It seems, kind of hard to figure he's going to be able to pull that off considering uh, who runs the legislature. Mm-hmm. Um, but New Hampshire, I think, is basically the same, certainly Kentucky. You know, so I I, I, I wonder how much of this is the continuing, uh, you know, electoral political salience of, of, of abortion, even when you can't, you know, when you have a general election, you can say, look, the, the results of this election is going to determine whether there is abortion rights in your state. That's a very compelling thing. Um, in, in cases like this, one seat isn't going to change everything, but it's sort of a, it's an opportunity for people to kind of say where they stand. So who knows? It's, it's, it kind of caught me off guard. Not that Democrats did well, but just that there was any kind of consistent pattern to the to the election. Yeah, it just kind of reminds me of those first special elections after Trump's election. You know, obviously those did not have like direct bearing on his presidency, but there was just such a sense of people feeling powerless and kind of looking for an outlet and there's some way to make an electoral statement and it was channeled into those ostensibly unrelated races and it does yeah. kind of feel like we've got that a bit going on here too. Well, I, I've also been a little surprised in the I, ha, I, I haven't done a direct one-to-one comparison, but even though the polls immediately after Dobbs were very lopsided, mm-hmm. um, the polls that I've seen more recently seem even more lopsided. 
Uh, and that's, I'm not sure if that's surprising or not. Um, whether, you know, uh, one way of looking at these questions is that the shock wears off for some people and you start thinking, well, you know, I don't like that that happened, but there are other issues and, you know, kind of it, it sort of it sort of recedes as a galvanizing issue. But that doesn't seem like the case. And I, I, I'm actually curious. Um, it seems from what I can tell, uh, it seems like there's even been more Republican resistance to the sort of the Dobbs era at least marginally over time. That does kind of make sense to me because especially, you know, if you're a Republican who doesn't stake your whole kind of identity on being anti-abortion, I assume it's just kind of something in the in the toolbox, you know, that that's what you are nominally. Yep. Um, but, you know, and on its face, the kind of idea of we're going to return this right to the states, like that doesn't sound unreasonable if you aren't kind of deeply steeped in this issue. And then in the months after, I guess that's when you start hearing all the horror stories and, you know, the biggest ones that have kind of come into the national headlines. And you probably start have to reckoning, start to reckon with what that looks like in your state or people you love state. I wonder if this is a matter of seeing how these kind of policy stances play out in people's real lives has had a mobilizing effect. Yeah, I, su I suspect that's it. I mean, two two things come to mind to me. I mean, you know, one is that um, in many ways during the entire Roe era, and certainly what I would say in the last 20 years or so, that a lot of the abortion rights question in a political context has been played out over when is an abortion too icky? for lack of a better word, for how these things kind of operate in our politics. Like, is it is it okay in the eighth month? Is it is it okay if the woman is was just a total hoe? And you know, I, I mean just to how it how it plays and people are like, well, that you didn't deserve an abortion. You did and 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 it's it's very different when it's just no abortions. You can't have one at all that 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 characterizes things very differently um and structures things structures the question uh, very differently because it is it is definitely the case that in this country you have a significant part of the electorate in many parts well in every part of the country but in different in differing you know, uh, amounts in, 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 in different parts of the country that wants abortion to be available, but is uncomfortable about it and kind of doesn't want to hear about it, um, is susceptible to these framings about, you know, partial birth and late term. And just, you know, I, I, I hope it was clear I was being uh, a jocular about, about the way that kind of slut shaming works in this, in this part of our politics. But, um, susceptible to arguments that are like women deserve the right to have an abortion if if you know if they were acting appropriately and something happened but not if you know that that whole kind of thing as a you know just as an, a a means of birth control like i was just you know kind of living wild and if something happens i'm just going to grab an abortion no big deal that that's kind of all that part of the debate is moot now because it's none 
and I, and I think the other part of this, and certainly abortion rights advocates have been clear on this for decades, that the whole language of exceptions for uh, incest, rape, and life of the mother, that we can see that in practice, those don't really exist. Because you have, um, you, we have seen a lot of cases where it's like, was it really incest? You know, are you sure? Like, was it really rape? Are you sure you were raped? Um, and as we've seen, these cases where, you know, if, if some medical authority can say, yes, within 24 hours, this woman will be dead if she does not have an abortion. But, but in practice, it never works that way. What you have is, is, is very uh, tenuous and uncertain medical situations where someone is, where the woman is in a fair amount of danger, but is she going to die? I mean, you don't know if she's going to die. She might die. She might not die. Or, you know, needless to say, it's like, it's not fun to might be in the might die category. There's a huge amount of suffering just based on that. And you have this dynamic where, you know, it's great when the doctor says, hey, my patient is suffering. I'm going to do what is medically correct and I'm just going to take the consequences. But everybody has their own life, right? And you're kind of like, do you, no one wants to be uh, you know, indicted by the local DA. So I think that's the other thing that when you were in the Roe era, people could say, well, life of the mother, incest, rape, so you're not going to get into some horror story. But we've sort of seen that those nominal exceptions don't really end up being exceptions in practice. Exactly. And I do think it's easier to swallow the idea of like, oh, there are exemptions for those things than how they even people trying to kind of follow the letter of the law, how that would play out. Like in, in some cases, that means you're going to ask a 10-year-old girl to come testify before a judge in a courtroom that, you know, her uncle raped her. I think that's harder to swallow when there is detail and human beings involved, even for the people who were okay with just the kind of toss-off line. Yeah. And, and, and I think we've seen in cases like this, you sort of... Yeah, a an appropriate way to approach that is like, how do we think this 10 year old got pregnant? Right. Like, is there some, is there some like, okay way she got pregnant? Exactly. You know, and probably, you know, probably not. And, and I think we, we all know. And again, I know I'm not saying anything new to people who've been uh, working this issue and advocating on this issue forever. But I think we know for, for in our in our own lives, when you have a loved one who is in a medical crisis, and the doctors say, "Look, you know, I think eighty percent chance they're going to make it," you're focusing on the twenty percent. That's terrifying. That's like really, really, really bad. Um, so you know, we know in practice that the times where you can say, "Yep, open and shut, twenty-four," you know. Are kind of like you know what is is seventy five percent chance of survival? Is that you know? I mean, in our actual lives, when you want the doctor to say, "Hey, this is gonna be okay. Mm -hmm. It's 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 difficult, but there's you know this it's it's okay. Nothing bad's gonna happen." When you start hearing about we're you know we we hope she's gonna pull through. In normal lives, everybody's terrified. You do everything you can. 
25% chance of the person dying is, is, is horrifying and, and, and heroic measures. So anyway, you know, kind exactly. of, uh, I think we all understand. So let's talk about uh, switching topics here. This morning, Wednesday morning, before we started recording, John Tester announced that he is going to run for re-election in Montana. I don't think there was a huge amount of mystery around this. I think kind of good money was on the side that he would run again. But for obvious reasons, it is hugely important to Democrat Senate chances. You know, if, if Tester doesn't run, that and is going to be hard to rustle up another Democrat in Montana that can has any shot at winning at all. And I think because he was kind of, you know, considered to have one foot in the door already, there wasn't any kind of aggressive search for a replacement. So I think big sigh of relief for Democrats across, across the board on this one. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a case where that's still a really tough race kind of every race he's been in has been in a tough race. I mean, my sense is is that most election analysts would say that him being in makes it a, you know, democratic leaning toss up versus you know, likely Republican. Yeah. Probably. So, it's mm-hmm. a big deal in a, in a in a year when Democrats have to kind of defend everywhere and and defend in a lot of very red states. Yeah, no wiggle room anywhere. And it's just, it's been a really interesting two years. I mean, John Tester has always been an interesting figure, especially because he has kind of survived the culling of red state Democrats that have claimed nearly everyone in the past few years. But, you know, I I will never forget that I was uh, on the Hill kind of during the most frenzied, fevered time of Build Back Better stuff when it was like, you know, we were kind of operating on day to day, what will Manchin allow and what will he not allow stuff. Um, And someone in a scrum I was in asked Tester if he would do XYZ, you know, like Manchin, if he would oppose something, something like Manchin. And Tester was like, like Joe Manchin, my God, no, my wife would divorce me. And it was, you know, funny, it made everyone laugh, but it was just it is striking that he is someone who has a profile that's like, you know, in the kind of fundamental nuts and bolts way, not that different from Joe Manchin in terms of one of the very endangered red state Democrats who are left. And Tester just never acted like Manchin. You know, he like talks about farmers more than other Democrats do and stuff like that. But during the kind of big legislative priorities, Anyone who's kind of like, well, where will John Tester come down is really just more manufacturing drama than reading anything that's really happening because that's just not been his M.O. Yeah. And I, and I think that, uh, you know, there, there's always this there's a lot of debate of like, well, are, you know, are Democrats making it impossible for like moderate Democrats to, you know, kind of exist in the Senate or the House or something like this? Is it, you know, is 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 there any space for any moderates? And and uh uh, tester shows you, yeah, there's lots of space. A- and, and I mean that on a few different levels. I mean, not, not least of which is he is, f- he is frequently, not frequently, there are a number of issues where he is not with national Democrats and national Democrats all, I mean, pretty universally are kind of like, got it, you know, you're from Montana, agricultural state, gun state, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but there is that difference of, 
you sort of have understandings. Hey, there's some issues I'm not going to be able to to be there with you on. Um, uh, the big issues uh, probably will be, but that's very different from like I don't know. I'm going to go and talk with uh, talk with my pals on Meet the Press about it and kind of you know see where I'm going to come. I mean, all that kind of um, you know self-aggrandizing drama is just not there. And, 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 uh, Mark Kelly was sort of like that Mm -hmm. in, in some significant ways. He departed fairly significantly from, from, uh, the white house and most, uh, and a lot of Democrats in the Senate on immigration issues, a few other issues. But again, a lot of it is just how you present it. You know, are you, are you kind of hitting everybody over the head with it or saying kind of like, you know, on this issue, I'm just I I I come down different. I'm I'm from a different state. I mean, I think somewhat in the defense of Mansion, although I think he takes it to an extent that is not defensible on anything but characterological grounds. There is often something politicians. It is often the case that you want to kind of make a big deal out of it. Hey, I'm not always with them. You you can see it here. I'm I'm bucking my party, and that at and uh, you know to survive in states where your party is not the dominant party, you often have to do that. You know the 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 the, the average person is not necessarily noticing like oh okay I guess there was this one ag bill or kind of you know you negotiated down this one you know. Uh, firearms bill, you know, sometimes you have to kind of, you know, be conspicuous. But anyway, John Tester has been able to make it work now for, I think, I mean, I think he came in in 2006, I think. I mean, wait, we should, we should, I mean, I should know this just from the, uh, the, yeah, 18 years, 18, wait, yeah, 18 years. So the six, yeah, three terms. Um, and there, who was this guy? I can't remember his name, this, um, you know, moderately corrupt, a Republican senator who he beat in 2006, and the first one was like a, you know, first race was 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 a bit of a shocker too. So you know, we'll see. I think my my I don't bet money. Even <laughs> obviously, it would be inappropriate for me to bet money on on things I cover. But even if I I weren't, I'm not a better. But I would say he's odds on. He probably pulls through, and the Democrats may have a an advantage here because. The uh, it seems like you may have a situation comparable to what we're seeing in the Wisconsin Supreme Court race shaping up there in terms of which Republican is going to face him. You have a, you you have either a fairly Trumpy or an extremely Trumpy Republican who is um, is going to face him, and I think for those of us who follow politics closely know this, for people who know the state of Montana know this, Montana's not like Wyoming or Idaho or or a bunch of other states in the region. It's always, it's just not quite the same. It's a Republican state, um, but it has a much more, it has a much larger Democratic or less polarized constituencies than other Northwestern slash Prairie states do. Yeah, the independent streak, I feel like is what it's usually referred to yeah, as. Yeah, and a lot of it's just just not quite as conservative. Yeah. I mean, especially when you get into like, you know, 
Idaho and Wyoming, but also the Dakotas, which, which again, are not, are a little different from, I mean, you know, nothing's Idaho, right? I mean, they have, you know, <laughs> it's, it's, it's a different thing, but yeah, so that's, that's, that's a pretty big deal. It was funny because kind of on the heels of the tester news, which he just announced himself, um, Joe Manchin went on a kind of prominent West Virginia radio show that he dips into from time to time. And the big takeaway that everyone was tweeting was that he said he wasn't going to run for governor in 2024. I tell you, I read this tweet that was like, Joe Manchin announces he will not run for, and I was like, oh my God. God, you know, like stomach dropped. What huge news. And then I got to the word governor and I was like, well, okay, great. Pro- probably by design. <laughs> and, you know, he's yeah. in, anything he could do to jump in and get everybody like, oh, mansion, man, like get the, get there, you know, the mansion, mansion fear brainstem, uh, uh, you know, tingling for Democrats across the, uh, across the United States. Right. Yeah. Okay. So let's wrap up here with uh, President Joe Biden under cover of night by a 10-hour train snuck into Kiev um, in this kind of, you know, some of the the TikToks have come out since then about the his movements and everything. This like almost, you know, it, it feels like it was from the West Wing or something. You know, they met on the tarmac at 4 a.m. There was one journalist and one photographer and three White House staffers and they didn't take Air Force One. They took like a, you know, kind of low key plane that they usually oh, really? just use for short distances. Oh, interesting. I didn't realize that. That makes or sense. That shorter makes... runways. Yeah. Right. Interesting. Interesting. And they, you know, they dropped down at one point to refuel and all the shades on the window stayed closed. And then he gets on this train and uh, apparently couldn't sleep very well. So just kind of sitting there like talking to his aides about his previous trips to Ukraine and musing in the the poetic night about, you know, democracy and everything. Well, do you remember um, uh, Sarah Huckabee Sanders in her uh, pretty awkward and fairly awful State of the Union response. And I don't think I'm just saying that because I'm not a fan of her politics. I don't think it it went over terribly well. But her kind of central point was, I guess they flew into what they flew into Baghdad or something, a, a Trump trip uh, to mm. visit troops somewhere. Okay. And they're very like, you know, the plane, you know, all the lights were off and we had the windows down and people couldn't believe the bravery of the president and we turned the engines off just to be sure all, all this kind of you know literally turned the engines off but you know all that kind of drama and stuff and uh you know iraq's a dangerous place but but you know it, it is where was it i think it was actually afghanistan somewhere where the u.s military controls the place so and and you know i think uh you know that's a war zone that that the Ukrainian military doesn't control the airspace. The U.S. military doesn't control the airspace. I mean, it was very interesting to me that they did give a de- what they call deconfliction, which is a word that kind of came into popular use basically over Syria, b- because it, in Syria for years now, you've had uh, the U.S. military and the Russian military operating in the same space. So they have kind of a protocol, kind of like, hey, we're going to be here. Don't show up here. Don't show up there. You know, just to keep everybody whatever. And that they did give the Russians a heads up mm-hmm. a few hours out. President of the United States is going to be in Kiev this period, which, you know, is, is, an, is a, you know, message is clear. 
<laughs> don't do anything, you know. Um, so yeah. So what do you think? It's you know, it's a pretty, pretty, pretty cool thing to see. I mean, pretty much everybody's been there by now, but U.S. president, you know, is a different level of different level of thing. Different level. I think what you kind of just alluded to this idea that it's not rare for American presidents to go into you know, kind of quote unquote conflict zones, but in areas where you know, American soldiers are on the ground and have controlled the area. That was not... And in the air. Right, key right. thing, in the air. Like, and you control the air, yeah. Simply not at all the case here. I mean, I do think... I think it was brave. I think it was, you know, risky to some degree. Obviously, Russia knew if they kind of did anything to mess with this trip, the retribution would be enormous. But that that doesn't take the chance off the table that they will, right? So it, it doesn't take the chance and and weird things happen in war zones and and the Russian military is not the only player. You have uh you know, you you, you have um you have a lot of crazies who are maybe, you know, Ukrainian in the sense of, you know, pro-Russian Ukrainian kind of paramilitaries that that operate in the eastern part of the country. So it's just, you know, it's a war zone. Uh, war zones are unpredictable. Um, yeah. And yeah. So I think, you know, logistically it was brave. And I think symbolically it just came at an important time because like you say, a lot of Western Europe, uh, Western leaders have been there. But it's different. It is different when it's the American president. And it's coming at a time when support among the public here in America is waning for Ukraine. You know, there's still the sense of like, uh, we are on their side, but we don't want to keep paying for their stuff. You've got the, the voices on the right who are criticizing Ukraine aid are kind of getting louder after a prolonged period of not necessarily unification because there was a segment of the Republican Party that is just kind of like full pro-Russia and doesn't make any bones about it. But now that's starting to solidify into a, what's the end goal here? We don't want to get pulled into an endless war that isn't ours, blah, blah, blah. That's kind of like the DeSantis note. Let me, yeah, let me ask you. I mean, I guess is it, and I haven't looked closely enough at the public opinion on this, whether it is waning support in the US or whether the issue has become pol increasingly polarized along partisan lines that it, that it has become just kind of you're republican you're against it and and maybe not as you say there are republicans who are kind of like just pro russian pro putin um as our colleague Josh Kavensky uh, wrote up yesterday you know putin gave a speech yesterday where he's it, it's remarkable the degree to which he speaks in ways that are highly internal to U.S. politics. I mean, the whole gendered, cultural, conservative, he-man thing is a thing in Russian politics, quite apart from anything happening in the U.S. But he frequently speaks to that issue in its U.S. dynamics. And, you know, so he's he's speaking to Republicans. And, and um, so you have the part of the Republican Party that is just pro-Putin. But I think you also have now ones that are pro-Putin, but, you know, Biden's the guy and we're against Biden. And, you know, um, we heard Ukraine's really corrupt. And, you know, so I but I'm but I'm curious how much it is, you know, waning versus just becoming partisanized along the lines of U.S. polarization? I think that's a really good question. Um, and I think, you know, in terms of 
if it's not just kind of people taking, you know, what Ron DeSantis says as fact, that this is going to, you know, I think this is important because it makes people feel proud of America, proud that the president kind of put his body on the line to show support. I mean, the pictures are so freaking cool in front of the cathedral. And then you know that like air raid sirens were going on behind him. And then also, I think in terms of what Biden has done, I think remarkably well from the outset of this invasion, which is in two days, it'll be a year ago, that he kind of got he was just the ringleader for the rest of the Western nations, kind of got everyone on the same page, made expectations clear. There was kind of this stunning unity among the kind of, you know, the liberal democracies, which is something that was even more striking, given that Putin had so counted against it, had counted that so many of these democracies are just embroiled in kind of internal struggles between authoritarian forces that they would, wouldn't be able to bind together, wouldn't be able to stay on the same page and wouldn't be able to give Ukraine support for long enough That Russia couldn't just wait it out, you know? And so now kind of him doing this, I think, is striking the same note of, okay, we're all on the same page again. You know, like, we are going to continue to do this. It's been a year, but we're going to kind of keep supporting Ukraine, which comes at another a critical point because there's also a point where you need to kind of take action to keep giving this kind of support, you know, whether that means um, upping production of certain weapons or, you know, just like different kind of logistical things that I think can make countries feel a bit weary in terms of like, I've been putting money in the church basket all year and now I have to, you know, do this. I, I, I think it was powerful. I think it was frankly just kind of cool and dramatic. And I think, um, you know, I think it, it made ripples. Yeah, I think there's there's a couple points to make about how this has played out over the over the course of the last year. One thing is that in Europe, you know, the U.S. had we had higher gas prices that were significantly affected in the middle months of 2022 by the war in, in Ukraine. Um, obviously, that became a huge deal in U.S. politics. It was cer- certainly a bummer if you put gas in your car, as I do, as many as many other people do. But in relative terms, it was fairly minor. It's been a huge, huge deal in Europe. Um, the governments there have had to substantially subsidize heating costs um, in you know, basically, they they heat the, they heat Europe with with Russian natural gas, basically. Um, and so that has in Europe that has been the bigger deal than direct aid is is basically absorbing. Um, it's, it's not a cutoff exactly, but basically Russia's use of that as a as a lever to try to break the you know kind of break the unity uh, of of Europe. I do think there has been uh, the the Russian invasion of Ukraine was a pretty big and galvanizing development in for Europeans in a very basic sense um but i think it is it is uh it's difficult because of the way things have played out this could have been very different with different with a different president in the United States. I mean, look, it's obvious it would have been profoundly different if it were Donald Trump. But even with another with another US president, and, and I don't mean by that just like, you know, he's tough enough to stand up to the Russians. It's not just a question of toughness. It's it's it requires a lot of uh diplomatic blocking and tackling to keep everyone on side. Um 
to you know to 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 do all of this and uh i think it's probably one of one of biden's uh greatest accomplishments as president and obviously the 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 um the significance of that accomplishment how you perceive the significance of that accomplishment has a lot to do with the importance you attach to the to the conflict itself i attach a lot to it for a lot of different reasons um and in, and in terms of, uh, you know, public support and waning, you know, people are people and and um, it is people like to win. They like to be they don't like people like to be on the right side of a conflict, what they perceive to be the right side of the conflict. I think we very much are in, for reasons I've expressed in various posts over over the last year, but they also want it to be going well. Right. Uh, everybody wants to, you know, be on the winning side and winning can be a little uh, can be it can be uh, a little tacky and um, unlovely to talk about being on the winning side in a conflict where lots of people are dying on both sides. Um, but this is human nature in, in, in some ways. And uh, it. I think one of the things that has helped Biden um, politically is he made a he made a big bet on this early on, and it seems to be working out well for the United States and the people of the United States is backing. So you know, it's it's. Uh, I, I also think it's funny. I saw I saw um, a few people over the last few days saying that, you know, kind of political analysts and so forth, a, f a few of which are actually Republicans, saying that even though this this works internal to Republican politics, Republicans are banking a, a political liability potentially going into 2024, because I think most of the country thinks Russia's on the wrong side of this. And some of that is because they are on the wrong side of this. But it's also related to the fact that that a lot of people in the United States, you know, Russia has been a bogeyman for, for uh, the United States for, you know, 70, 80 years. Um, a lot of things play into that. Uh, a lot of people feel a lot of sympathy with uh, Ukraine and feel like we did the right thing. And, and you know, if if... I, th I think that will put Republicans in kind of an iffy position in a in a general electorate context um, for good reasons. Good reasons being the Russians are on the wrong side, and our strategic interests in a united uh, Europe that is allied with the United States and all that kind of stuff is is all that is really important. The sort of the global battle between. Uh, authoritarian authoritarianism and civic democracy, but it's also the case uh, the, the the less lovely aspects of it. People like to be on the winning side. There 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 is uh, a level of kind of antagonism towards Russia that is just historic in this country. Maybe not always for good reasons. And I think you go into twenty twenty four thinking like a lot of people are pretty proud that we kind of stood up to this and why are you being you know kind of why are we, why are you being a dick about it <laughs> you know to put it in really to put it in really crude terms so we'll you know we'll, we'll we'll see how it plays but i for my for my thinking it's something that that uh 
Joe Biden just did the right thing, not just in some generic moral sense of it's not good when a a weaker country, smaller country gets invaded, you know, kind of an unprovoked invasion, but also it's it's it was a big deal in a in a, in a lot of broader contexts and um I think he did the right thing and I think he's made a lot of good decisions. So just, you know, to me kind of like I I I feel proud of 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 what they have accomplished in that in that setting. Yeah, there really is just such a sense to you that like, you know, Biden's whole legacy of being a striver, of wanting to be president for so long, and now he finally is. And when he became president at this kind of existential moment in the country, you know, it, the whole soul of America thing. And then this happened, which is like, you know, kind of like you said, a cater made situation for someone who, you know, has spent so much of his career doing foreign relations stuff and proving that one of his greatest strengths and, you know, why Obama picked him is because he has done this a lot. He's traveled a lot. He's good at kind of befriending uh, powerful people in other countries and in talking to them. Um, And now, you know, he's in a position where he's kind of leading the Western coalition against this existential threat to a country trying to self-govern. I mean, there is something kind of I don't know, cinematic or Yeah, so sometimes history lines up well for certain people or give them opportunities to show things that maybe they were not able to demonstrate in other contexts. And the other thing I would say is that you can be very versed in foreign policy. You can have spent a lot of time in the Senate as a foreign policy person, meeting all the leaders and stuff like that. Um, But it's a different thing to be, to have to make big decisions and have to, and have to, um, have to uh, uh, be accountable for those decisions, and you know, I think I think they've done a really good job. And obviously, it's not it's not uh, you know at, at the end of the day, it, it's it's on him. But obviously, he's got a team that I think has you know demonstrably made uh, made a number of 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 good decisions over. So you know, good for them, good for us. Yep. All right. So uh, I guess that is all we have for today. Uh, Good episode, in my humble opinion. Uh, Let me remind you that the Josh Marshall Podcast is brought to you by Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee. You can get 25% off every order if you use the promo code TPM at Grady'sColdBrew.com. And uh, I think that's it for this week. All right. See you next week. Later. The Josh Marshall Podcast is hosted by me, TPM reporter Kate Riga, and TPM founder, editor-in-chief Josh Marshall. The show is produced by Jackie Wilhelm. Thanks to Why Not Jansfeld for our podcast theme song, and thanks to all our TPM members who make this possible. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, and subscribe wherever you listen.